Temperatures are dropping quickly and hundreds of Anchorage residents are currently living unsheltered in camps and on streets across the city. What's the plan to keep them safe this winter and beyond? I'm Ann Hillman and today on Hometown Alaska, we're speaking with three city leaders who are working on this issue. Our guests today are Anchorage Assembly member Felix Rivera, Anchorage Health Department Housing and Homeless Coordinator Alexis Johnson, and Anchorage Coalition to End Homelessness Chief Operating Officer Jessica Parks. Thank you all very much for being here. We're also taking your calls and your emails. What questions do you have about the winter sheltering plans? What are your ideas that you want to share? Give us a call at 907-550-8433 or statewide 1-888-353-5752. And you can also email us hometown at alaskapublic.org. Um, before we get started, I also want to be fully transparent. I am currently back in school for social work and my internship does involve working with people who are unhoused and Though my education certainly shapes my interest in this topic, I won't be discussing anything from those experiences. I just want to put that out and be honest about that. Um, so I want to just start by helping people understand the scope of this issue. Um, how many people are currently unsheltered um, and what resources do we have for them? So Alexis. Yeah, so thanks for the opportunity. Um, at the beginning of summer when Sullivan Arena and the uh, non-congregate facilities let out for summer and emergency cold weather sheltering season kind of came to a close, we believe that we had about 775 people living unsheltered on our streets. Um, that was a number that was agreed upon by the coalition and the municipality. Um, and during that time, the uh, municipality brought on quite a number of housing units uh, for people to move into. We brought on um, the guest house, which was early in the year, um, but most importantly, the Barrett's coming online, the Lakeshore, the Golden Lion, a lot of housing units. And so a lot of the people that were living unsheltered are now having an opportunity to move into housing. And that's kind of what we as a municipality and uh, as a community want to see. Um, and can you describe those housing units? Like we, what do they look like? What do they cost? That sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So a lot of the units are uh, what we refer to as hotel conversions. So they were uh, in their previous life, a hotel room. Uh, so they look very similar to hotel rooms you might experience uh, going to hotels. It's a, a large open space, uh, typically furnished with a bed, a table and a few chairs. Uh, sometimes a TV and some storage, and then a bathroom. So they'll have a private bathroom and then a door that can shut and lock. Okay. <clears throat> and people are paying rent for these units? Yes. Uh, so the rents vary uh, depending on the facility, but they're typically uh, between $800 and $840 per month. Okay. That actually still seems like a lot of money. It, it is still a lot of money. Uh, that is what HUD considers the fair market rent uh, for a unit that is the unit type called SRO or single room occupancy, uh, which is what those units qualify as. Uh, they have a shared uh, community kitchen facility uh, that is available to the residents of the facility as well. Uh, so that's where some of that comes from, is what HUD has determined to be fair market rent for those units. Okay, is there any sort of sliding scale? I think that would depend on the facility and on the program, uh, but they uh, they do typically qualify to use their voucher there. So if okay. someone has a housing voucher that is helping them out with that rent, uh, that will be able to be applied to that rent as well. 
And most of those vouchers uh, limit the contribution by the tenant to 30% of their income. Okay. So people can still survive. Yes. All right. Well, and I think in this conversation, it's important to, to recognize that there are a group of individuals who are experiencing homelessness um, who have jobs, some of them full-time jobs, um, but do not make enough income to pay the market rents that we have. And we all saw in the news how high rents have gone over the last couple of years. Um, so for, for some folks who are paying jobs, uh, who have paying jobs, shelter is the only accommodation they can make. Yeah. Okay, so thank you for all the clarifications. So Alexis, oh, many units came online the start of the summer. Yeah, so um, when we looked at the 775 and how many units came online, we know that our population now is between 400 and 450 people that will be still seeking shelter come winter time. Um, so our plan from the health department is to ensure that emergency cold weather shelter covers that gap so that people have an opportunity to not, you know, be in or to be inside and not be camping on our parks and trails okay so what's the plan like yeah so i'm happy to report um we initially as the health department put out a request for information for any viable non-congregate facilities and non-congregate essentially is like a hotel room where you're not in a very like large mass uh, facility where you're you know packed into a room with 50 other people it's you and a roommate in a hotel room and so the response to the rfi was really uh good and that was the preliminary response now we have put out an itb which is an intent to bid um, where it kind of formalizes that process and um, you know we've been receiving emails that itb is not closed yet but we believe we'll have about 300 to 340 non-congregate beds which puts us in a position where we just need one small congregate facility um, between 100 and 150 people. So it's a really good position, at least from the health department and the administration standpoint, to be going into emergency cold weather shelter. Okay, so ideally, are these contracts getting signed soon? Yes, yeah, so the ITB will be out for 14 days. It was posted on Friday. Um, and so we will be coming into the end of this month and then we'll put it before the assembly for a vote. And the funding has already been appropriated by the assembly. So it's sitting there in an account ready to go. And we think we'll be able to turn it on hopefully by October 15th. Okay, so are there rules and restrictions that come with this housing? Like if you get a room at one of the hotels, can you stay there all night, all day? What are, what are the rules? Yeah, so we're looking at low barrier shelter and low barrier shelter is come as you are. Um, there are some rules you do have to behave accordingly. You can't threaten your roommate, such as that, but you can come in under the influence, um, you know, and it's our job to get people who wouldn't normally like seek shelter to come inside during emergency cold weather shelter, but there's very few um, barriers or rules that they have to abide by, but there are some like health and safety rules um, such. So yeah, okay. it's a good, good position we want low barrier beds and people can keep their stuff there all day they can stay there all day yes and their rooms lock which is not something that you normally get within like a mass facility or a congregate facility you get a private space to lock your stuff what if you spend the night somewhere else so you have to check in twice a day um and you know the staff that we had last year were very helpful and just you know hey john are you going to go to work today perfect we'll write you down for the night and there's a lot of checks ins and checkouts just to make sure people are you know taken care of and being monitored and help helped if they needed it so if someone doesn't come out of the room because they're ill it's our job to make sure that somebody is there to respond to that so so like staff will go from room to room every day and knock on the door yes a they couple will. times a day yep 
Okay. Yeah. All right. We already have a couple calls on the line. Let's go ahead and talk to Stu. Stu, welcome to Hometown Alaska. Thanks, Ann. Hey, uh, thanks, everyone, for working on this really challenging problem. Um, we're seeing the shift now from, you know, the twice-a-year shift from the parks back to somewhere that's heated. And I'm wondering, can we try to avoid this in the future? Um, my neighbors and I keep talking about the Northway Mall. It's away from the bike trails. It's, um, it's massive. It could be subdivided into different units. Um, it's looking like the Buckner building in Whittier now. They're fixing it up. But um, is anybody considering that as an option so these people don't have to shift every six months? And we get our parks and trails back, which would be so wonderful. But once again, guys, thanks for this working on this really hard problem. Um, the folks are cold now. I'm seeing them. I'm talking to them. I'm giving the addresses to the homeless coordinators and emails and stuff. And um, why is this happening over and over again? Um, giving them a condo or an apartment or a hotel room for six months is not the total solution. We need to have a place for them to go with social services and to a lot of people in the Northway Mall, it seems like an option that would work. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Stu. Um, a couple of big questions there. I guess we'll address Felix. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. No, uh, and thank you so much, uh, Stu, um, for the question and for recognizing the, the humanity uh, of the situation. So, uh, yeah, first, I just want to right off the bat just talk about Northway Mall because that is something that gets brought up a lot uh, and um, in fact recently we learned that the owner of that property they recently changed the cell uh, to a tear and build <laughs> meaning the property is in such poor condition that it's probably more beneficial for whoever will own it in the future that they tear down the building and build something new up um, so I, that just tells you how deteriorated that property really is and how um, expensive it would be to uh, do something like folks have been talking about, some type of one-stop shop at the Northway Mall. Um, so that is just something that, you know, for me, fiscally, we are constrained. And so that's not something that I'm looking at right now. Um, now, when it comes to the transition out of emergency cold weather shelter, that it's absolutely something that we need to be considering. Uh, and in fact, next month, you're going to start hearing the Housing and Homelessness Committee dive into that conversation. Um, and you'll be hearing us talking about it from here until April and, and not just talking, but figuring out the plans to do something about it. Um, you know, one of the things that we know we need when it comes to the transition out of cold weather shelter is some type of permanent year round shelter. We don't know exactly what that might look like, where it might go, but we know it is a need in our community. We know we need 150, 200 beds. Um, and then uh, beside that, there have been some good groups that have um, been formed recently that have looked at this. Um, so the Sanctioned Camp Task Force, Allowed Camp Task Force, um, they uh, put out some really great recommendations to the Assembly and to the Mayor of um, here's what you can do to help make this transition less chaotic because we want to avoid that. And so that'll be a discussion we have again. What do allowed camps look like and do we want to move in that kind of policy direction? And do you have ideas of where those would be or is that just still part of the conversation? So the task force did um, put out a, a series of recommendations. I think they had five different um, possible locations that were on municipal land. I don't remember those off the top of my head, but we'll probably start with the recommendations the task force came out came out with and then move from there. Okay. 
And then I another thing that Stu mentioned in the call was the the need for support services. And like that's true even in winter when people are just trying to stay warm. What will be happening during these winter shelters? Like will there be case managers and what does that look like? Will there be I mean, things to give people purpose to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as far as social services providers, we do, as part of the ITB, um, that provision will be outlined and so people will respond to it. The thing that we, um, this is something that we address and I've had communications with assembly members on this is we're getting to a point where we are running out of operators because we have built out such a robust infrastructure over the last two, three years that we're getting to a point where all these facilities are up and running, they're being managed, and to add additional like year-round shelter, we really need to have adequate funding so that more social service providers come to the table. Because right now we're kind of making do um, with the staffing that we have, um, but we're building out such a robust infrastructure in such a short amount of time that it's almost like our workforce can't keep up with it. So for emergency cold weather shelter, yes, there will be um, support services, um, but we are getting to the point where it's going to be limited uh, eventually. So then given the limitations, like what do those support services look like in this situation? Yeah, I think it's really important uh, as we have these conversations that we talk about keeping those services housing focused. And we want to make sure that from the moment we're having that interaction with someone in emergency shelter, we are talking to them about what the next steps are. Uh, what does their housing journey look like? What are their barriers and how can we assist them in overcoming them? Uh, I think that that will also help uh, with some of this uh, cycling that we've seen over the past few years. Uh, if we're not putting someone's housing journey on pause for them to enter emergency cold weather shelter, uh, they are much more likely to exit into a housing destination. And uh, our experiences and studies have shown that a non-congregate setting does have uh, more successful outcomes in a higher percentage of people exiting to a permanent housing destination. Uh, so we are really excited to look at that this year. Okay. Yeah, and, and that's a really great point because um, the appropriation that the assembly approved um, last week really had some policy strings attached to it that talked about this emergency cold weather shelter that we're standing up needs to be run under a housing first paradigm. So optimally, people will stay for no more than 90 days in emergency shelter before they are transitioned to some type of housing. Um, within the first seven days of their stay, they will have some type of coordinated entry assessment done, uh, which is a, uh, the first step really to getting you on the pathway to whatever comes next. Um, and it's in fact why the assembly, um, when we appropriated those dollars, we set aside $1.3 million that needs to be matched dollar for dollar to the Anchorage Affordable Housing and Land Trust um, to uh, do some rehab of vacant and abandoned properties so that come April, we have 30 to 40 new housing units online that were currently vacant and abandoned properties because we know housing is the solution and so we need to make those investments. And so does that mean that you'll like as you're coordinating care for people and starting this process does that mean you're connecting them with medical providers does that mean you're connecting them with social supports like and making sure that they have access to transportation so they can still visit the people that they care about yes exactly so that is a, a housing focused approach so making sure that that case management services is making those connections it's not just about 
uh, housing. Housing first isn't housing only. So making sure that people have those other connections once you have reached that level of stability for them. Um, I think that that's where the resources and the connections with service providers in the community are key because there's not one organization that can be everything to everyone. All right. And we are going to go back to the phones. We have Martha. Martha, welcome to Hometown Alaska. Hi, good morning. Good morning. I appreciate, I appreciate everyone's um, work and also for the moderator for your continuing your education and looking into this field for, um, for getting your degree. I wanted to ask you about the matter of race and the my, I myself am Alaska Native. I was born and raised here. Alexa from the mayor's office. I'm the one who stood up last year when you were new on the job at the assembly meeting, which I don't normally attend. I've never spoken up, and I um, and I mentioned that um, I wanted to look the mayor in the eye to want to ask how he could sleep at night when people are cold. And I mentioned that we are Anchorage already has a plan called Housing First. And Alex Rivera, when you gave up the chairmanship of the assembly, I was disappointed in you. And for all the people who are making money off of this issue, homelessness, and making a salary, what kind of incentive do you have to lose your job that you don't need it anymore? Remember, we're paying people hundreds of thousands of dollars. There are millions of dollars on the table. We shouldn't be having this kind of problem. It's a humanitarian crisis. When we make the news, because the mayor offered to send people, give people a blue ticket? Does he mean rural Alaska? Is that code talk for Native people? And I have a question about, uh, so the matter of race. Why are we disproportionately represented? I live in a city that has a history of housing discrimination. When I grew up, being 65, Willow Park was the ghetto housing for Native people downtown. Martin Arms no longer exists. Uh, Carlock, the uh, housing on Carlock. We were brown and black people couldn't live past C Street. So we have a we have a pattern of historic discrimination. We, uh, why are uh, when I mentioned housing first, we already had that model. Why why did we lose it? So let's talk about the matter of race. My other question has to do with: Is anyone there representing the native corporations? Cooking the region incorporated is the biggest player in town. Who is the chairman of their board? I don't see them at the table. I don't see them on the streets. They're letting their people die. They can't even show the sidewalk in front of their business. So Martha, let's. People. I'm. I'm going to pause you just so we can address because you've asked a lot of questions already. Um, uh, not really. I've uh, talked about the matter of race. I've talked about historic discrimination, mm -hmm. and I'm asking who, 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 where, where are the, where are the native corporations in this? And it's a delicate, and it's a delicate issue for non-natives, but not for me. Okay. Um, can any of you address that, like the involvement of Native corporations in this plan? Oh, Jessica. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Anne. And thank you, Martha, for calling in and sharing that information. Uh, I do know that uh, the Cook Inlet um, organizations are involved in these conversations, and they have been part of the homeless prevention and response system, uh, both as a housing provider and as a service provider. Uh, I do think that we have, as a community, a lot to look at and a lot to address when it comes to systemic racism and specifically how that fits into people's housing. 
Yeah, uh, and and thank you, Martha, for those questions. Um, I, I'll address your your question around um, Alaska Native corporations because this is something that is asked a lot, and I actually have a, a list here. Um, <laughs> so we have really a, a few different uh, Alaska Native corporations that give heavily in this area. We have Callista Corporation, Chugach Alaska Corporation, the Siri Foundation, and Doyon Corporation as well as, of course, South Central Foundation and RollCap. They're all different agencies that, that um, are either funded by Alaska corporations or they give themselves. Um, so we do see a lot of work by Alaska Native corporations in this. Um, when it comes to um, you know, this, this idea of there are so many different people who are getting paid uh, in, in this, you know, some people like to call it the, the homelessness industrial complex, um, there, there is, you know, some, some. We are nonprofit heavy in the municipality of Anchorage, uh, and I think one of the things that we have learned recently is that, um, you know, especially looking at the Houston model, we have a plan called the, called the Anchored Home Plan, which is a housing first driven plan, and what we really need to do is all of these hundred plus nonprofits. Uh, really need to be coordinating through that plan so that we can move forward and be successful. And I really think um, the Anchorage Coalition to End Homelessness, which primarily works in that, works in that uh, coordination capacity to do that work. Okay. Um, and so Martha mentioned that we were uh, had a housing first plan. We still have a, like that hasn't changed. We're still working along the model that Martha mentioned. Yeah, the Anchorage Assembly, I believe last year, adopted the Housing First uh, methodology moving forward. Um, that's something that we're always working on, working towards. Um, we're always housing focused in everything that we do. Um, as far as, um, you know, we've had a lot of great work from South Central Foundation in intensive case management. I mean, it, it's kind of behind the scenes when you see um, you know, native corporations or nonprofits coming to the table. It's not always like in your face. Emergency cold weather shelter, um, you know, we work with all stakeholders. It's not, we're not trying to exclude anyone. This is a community focus and a community uh, lift. And we're, we're always engaging, especially with native corporations on the, on the matter. Okay. And Martha, you also mentioned um, historical housing discrimination within the city, um, as well as just centuries of historical and current racial systemic problems. I, I guess my first question is, are people on the assembly and also people who are working within this field receiving any sort of education around um, the traumas people have experienced so that they're, when encountering folks, they're a bit more um, educated and sensitive? So certainly on the assembly, we have held those kinds of uh, trainings in the past. Um, especially in 2020, 2021 timeframe, we had those trainings. It's probably time for us to maybe do another round of those since we have a bunch of new assembly members. But it's certainly, you know, uh, these these issues of long-standing racism and equity and how we can build uh, more equity into our community is an important topic for the assembly. Okay. And so will staff at some of the emergency shelters receive kind of similar training at all? Or is that up to the people who on the contracts to run the facilities? Yeah, so one of the things that we put in um, as, a, as a want, it's not an absolute necessity, but for the last two years they have been doing it, is focus on de-escalation training, hands-off approach, um, trauma-informed care. Um, I'm not quite sure if uh, we've talked about like culturally appropriate training, but that's something that we can always add to, um, add to 
you know, the workload, we can definitely do that. That's not something that's out of the question, at least for Anchorage Health Department standpoint. And I will share that the Anchorage Coalition and Homelessness is the uh, lead agency for the HUD continuum of care funding that comes in. And one of the pieces of those applications is asking each of the applicants to outline what their organization does around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how they specifically take into account feedback from people with lived experience that they are providing services to. So I think that that's a great starting point for how we can develop uh, some of these programs and processes uh, to go system-wide. Thank you. Martha, thank you for bringing up all those incredibly important issues. We need to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more of Hometown Alaska. You're listening to Hometown Alaska on KSKA Anchorage. You can subscribe to free podcasts of Hometown Alaska on our website at alaskapublic.org. The conversations you hear on Hometown Alaska are focused on the needs and voices of Alaskans, and the generosity of Alaskans brings them to you. Join your neighbors and become a member of your public radio station today. Welcome back to Hometown Alaska. Today we're discussing the winter homelessness plan in Anchorage and beyond. Our guests are Anchorage Assembly member Felix Rivera, Anchorage Health Department Housing and Homeless Coordinator Alexis Johnson, and Anchorage Coalition to End Homelessness Chief Operating Officer Jessica Parks. We would also love to get more callers and receive some emails. We want to hear from you on this issue because homelessness affects everyone in the community. Our number here in Anchorage is 907 550 8433 statewide it's 1-888-353-5752 and our email is hometown at alaskapublic.org thank you all again for being here um focusing back in specifically on this winter and what's coming up with this winter um with the units you have coming online with hotels is that enough or are there other organizations involved like churches or any other groups filling in any gaps? Yeah, thanks for the question. So we believe that we will be able to cover the 400 to 450 with emergency cold weather shelter. We have asked um, churches that if they have the capabilities to assist possibly with warming facilities um, and not so much shelter, there's quite a few requirements if churches want to engage with shelter, one of those being a high barrier. Um, so within code, there is a sobriety requirement if churches are going to shelter. Another barrier that we see is fire. Um, so churches, in order to shelter people overnight, have to have a fire suppression system. That wasn't a requirement until the late 80s um, within our safety code. And so um, a lot of churches we know were built before the 80s, and so they don't have um, the fire suppression system, so they require a 24-7 fire watch, meaning someone has to stay up and make sure that a fire doesn't break out. And so um, that's one of the limitations that we see from churches engaging in that, so. Uh, looking at uh, a specific subpopulation, so the emergency cold weather shelter for families uh, has been in the past, so pre-pandemic, uh, operated by uh, churches and uh, in the past, it was uh, a rotation of churches opening up their facility for overnight shelter. 
Uh, last year, the assembly appropriated the funds and the health department uh, awarded a contract uh, to one organization, Christian Health Associates, who has been organizing the family emergency cold weather response uh, last year and plans to again this year, uh, which relies on volunteers from churches who are able to do that uh, fire watch service. But what they've been able to do is have uh, one single site that uses a non-congregate model uh, with some hotel rooms as uh, the overflow when that uh, particular site is filled. Uh, so having the the volunteers has brought the, the cost down, but also allowed this facility to remain very housing focused and work with those families uh, pretty intensively to uh, move them uh, into permanent housing and had uh, close to a 30% um, exit to permanent housing results last year. So that uh, was really, uh, really great and uh, really excited to use that model again this year. Yeah. And of the 700-ish people you were talking about earlier, how many of them are families and kids? So uh, over the course of the summer, the uh, Anchorage Coalition and Homelessness held a shelter hotline number and held a shelter wait list uh, to be able to help families who were experiencing homelessness navigate uh, into shelter space as it became available. Uh, similar to the single adult shelters, the family shelters uh, remain uh, pretty much at capacity at all times. Uh, over the course of the summer, we had uh, over a hundred families uh, call and uh, be placed on that. And while some were able to uh, be placed into shelter, what we see frequently with families is situations where they're doubled up or they're couch surfing. Uh, so we have seen some families be unsheltered this summer, uh, but it is a, a, a much lower number than the total number of families that are experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity. Okay. Um. You mentioned warming shelters and churches potentially being warming shelters. Will there be a warming shelter for folks who who are camping? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now we haven't identified a municipally owned warming shelter. We're hoping that we can have enough shelter beds and shelter space so that people won't need to seek a warming shelter. They'll get a shelter bed. Um, but we do have some facilities that we're working through right now to see if we can open warming. Uh, the biggest issue that we're seeing, uh, I think, is going to be funding because um, we're very limited on funding and we have just enough right now to get us through with 400 shelter beds. Okay. And oh, and, and if I might, uh, I'm glad that you brought up warming because um, I, I always like to expand the idea of warming because warming itself and setting up warming areas should not be something that's specifically targeting, targeting people experiencing homelessness. It should really be something for our entire community. And sort of if you think about it in the lower 48, in some of their large metropolitan areas that are full of concrete in the summer, they're getting baked in the summer, right? Uh, and dealing with heat waves. And so they set up cooling stations um, that are for all residents in the community. So that that is sort of going forward. We've historically thought about warming areas as just for people experiencing homelessness. But going forward, I really want us um, to think about it more as a community-wide um, uh, tactic to use. Okay, to keep everybody safe. Absolutely. Yeah, and potentially reduce heating costs, which, yeah. Um, are there plans to help people who have an increased number of needs? So people who have challenges with their activities of daily living. So like 
They can't get to the bathroom themselves. They can't shower to themselves. It's hard to be in a congregate shelter in that situation. Is, And it's sometimes hard to live alone in that situation. Are there plans for helping that particular population of individuals? So I can speak from the historical perspective and what we're doing uh, now, but as far as the future, I think that identified need um, is there and we really need to focus on a facility. So we did bring on complex care, which was for a certain subpopulation for people who needed a little bit of assistance, but not so much assistance that they would have qualified for assisted living facility. Mm -hmm. um, we do at the Anchorage Health Department have a resource um, where we use uh, uh, basically a survey and then once someone qualifies we help get them into an assisted living facility that's a choice that someone has to make if they qualify and they don't want to go into that facility um, you know that's a client choice we did have a certain subpopulation of people who were seeking shelter at the Sullivan Arena last year and the Anchorage Assembly did approve an additional month um, beyond emergency cold weather shelter for that specific population we saw a lot of people um, get placed after that but there are some people that did not want um, the assistance at least from our end to get into a facility that would meet their needs. I do think there is additional space that's needed for that certain population. Um, and I would like to see emergency cold weather shelter extend at least through the summer of next year for that population. And so um, if anyone has any things they want to jump in on, um, but yeah. I think it covered it. I would just share that there is a process right now uh, that is the Anchorage Coalition the uh, service providers and the health department working really closely. Uh, there's a weekly uh, highly vulnerable case conferencing meeting that occurs. So when the street outreach teams or uh, operators of current emergency shelter, not emergency cold weather shelter, but when that starts, uh, they would be included as well. Uh, identify someone who does have those higher needs. Uh, they're able to bring it to that group and make a referral to ADRC, which is within the health department, to be able to have uh, that assessment done. Sorry, Aging Disability and Resource Center. Uh, so they, they're able to uh, do that assessment and start uh, making those referrals to assisted living when someone does have that uh, level of need. And can they help fund assisted living? Assisted living's not cheap. Yes, yeah. there are some uh, funding mechanisms to get people into assis assisted living. All right. And we are now going back to the phones. Jessica from Anchorage, welcome to Hometown Alaska. Hi. Um, yeah, I just have a comment and a question about, um, in the last few years, it seems like trailer parks have become really sort of unfashionable in Anchorage. And I know that there is a trailer park right now in Eagle River that is possibly being condemned. And I kind of worry that all of those people are going to be falling into homelessness or, or other situations. And um, I'm just wondering if we're going to do anything about that. And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you, Jessica, for calling. Um, yeah, I'll start. So, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, we know that uh, manufactured housing communities, trailer parks, whatever you want to call them, um, are really a, a baseline need in our community for um, folks who are sort of in our lowest income brackets who need who that's the only housing that they can afford. So um, the assembly is actually looking at um, doing some studies of ma manufactured housing communities and um, some of the the new sort of models of manufactured housing communities and and do those newer models work in Anchorage's climates and in Alaska's climate. And one of the things that we're actually um, 
you know, when that study results come out, that'll go really well with a NOFO, a notice of funding opportunity that the federal government is putting out specifically for manufactured manufactured housing communities. Um, and I'm sure uh, Jessica can probably speak more to that. Uh, yes, we are definitely looking forward to seeing that uh, opportunity come forward and see uh, what uh, funding is available and what projects might qualify. Uh, to talk about the uh, the mobile home facility out in Eagle River, uh, so there was a, it, the name of the park is Forest Park, uh, there was a Forest Park Task Force formed uh, that had been meeting regularly to talk about how that housing could be preserved and how uh, the facilities there could be brought um, to a level that was able to make those units habitable. So those conversations are ongoing. Uh, there's been a couple different solutions identified. So hopefully we see that come to a resolution here in the next few weeks. But that has been something that uh, this task force and the community has been really involved in making sure that uh, if those families uh, aren't able to inhabit those uh, units any longer, that we're finding additional units for them and not uh, having them move into a homeless situation. So to be clear, there's housing identified or it's in progress? Uh, there's uh, solutions in progress to uh, fix the issues that were happening at that park. Uh, it was a water and wastewater uh, issue. So they're they're exploring and identifying solutions to be able to fix those infrastructure systems. Okay. All right. Thank you very much for your call, Jessica. I appreciate it. Um, we're gonna go. We're gonna go back to the phone lines, and we have Alan from Chickaloon. Alan, thanks for calling. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. Uh, the one thing I I have extensive experience in British Columbia with the homeless. And uh, I live here now, but uh, the problem that I have not uh, heard discussed yet is uh, what happens when you get, like, we have people that have serious mental uh, illness issues here and also drug addiction and alcoholism. Now, how are you going to monitor uh, these units that will be given to some of these people that turn into crack shacks, uh, you know, apartments full of needles for heroin addiction? and uh, the absolute filthiness that some people choose to live because of their condition. How are you going to monitor that in, if that is the case? Because if I was living in, a, in an area where these people were living and it's a crack shack, I, I just don't understand how are you going to monitor it. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Alan. And Alan, I'll take a shot at that. Um, so one of the things that we know is the data shows that once we get people into a facility, like a non-congregate setting, they're actually more apt to having conversations um, about addressing their substance misuse problems. It's very difficult for us, um, you know, and social service providers to go out into camps and say, let's get you into a rehab or into a substance misuse facility, knowing full well that that person is going to exit in 30 days back to unsheltered homelessness, back with, you know, um, their surroundings where drugs are really easy to come by. When we bring people into facilities, we actually limit their interactions with, you know, people who are predatory on them, who are, you know, wanting to sell them those illegal substances. And it's really an awesome opportunity, at least for us, to say, we have a facility ready for you to go. We'd like to get you clean and sober. And then after those 30 days or the 45-day treatment, 
um, to get them back into a facility that's warm, that they get to lock their door in, you know, and it's a private facility for them. So at least that's our standpoint um, at the Anchorage Health Department. Maybe you can speak to it a little bit more. Yeah, I, I will say that we have found time and time again that a housing first model works. And that's part of a housing first model is that you address someone's immediate needs first, their needs for safety, their needs for security, and their needs for shelter. And then you're able to help address uh, some of those underlying conditions like health conditions, uh, like mental illness, like addiction. And so with this winter sheltering plan, like if people are at a point where they're where they're willing to go to detox or to get help, like can you guarantee them a space when they get released? So I can speak from a substance misuse standpoint, we do have treatment beds available. One of the things that we're lacking within the community is readily available detox beds. Um, right now there are detox beds available um, and we have more in the valley that we sometimes refer to, but there are substance abuse treatment facilities open and ready to take clients right now. And can you ensure that the clients can stay until they have a safe housing situation to exit to? So we work with uh, those providers. Um, one of the biggest ones that we work with is the Salvation Army. Uh, those treatment beds are residential, so they will get an extended stay. Usually it's between 30 to 45. I know that there are some, um, like South Central Foundation, I believe, has recovery beds as well. Chris Kyle. Um, and then we work with those providers to say, hey, can you let us know when that client's ready to exit? And then we work, a lot of the times we work really well with Complex Care. Um, Golden Lion has been a great uh, partner in that. And so there's a lot of movement and we try and ensure that that person maintains their sobriety exiting uh, residential treatment. Excellent. Thank you mm -hmm. for, for sharing that plan. We are going to take another quick break and then we'll be back with more Hometown Alaska. You're listening to Hometown Alaska on KSKA Anchorage. You can subscribe to free podcasts of Hometown Alaska on our website at alaskapublic.org. From one end of Alaska to the other and everywhere in between, public media works to provide quality programming and statewide news you can count on and news you can trust. Whether you're listening at home, at work, or in the car, we're grateful to be a part of your day. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome back to Hometown Alaska. Today we're discussing both short-term and longer-term plans for homelessness in Anchorage. We'd love for you to join the conversation. We've had some great calls already. What do you think could be part of the solution? Call us at 907-550-8433 if you're in Anchorage. It's 907-550-8433 in Anchorage. You can also reach us statewide at 1-888-353-5752. And our email is hometown at alaskapublic.org. Um, we've been talking a lot about this immediate need and this immediate solution. Um, Let's transition a little bit to talking a little bit more longer term. Um, so what's happening post-April, if we know? What are, Felix, can you, can you chime in here, please? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I think, like I said before, one of the things that we know we need in our community is permanent year-round uh, shelter of some kind. And so that's certainly, I think, top of mind. Um, and, you know, we're looking at that looming April deadline to, to 
get something stood up. Um, we also know that we need more housing in our community, right? We are facing a housing crisis all across the board. Uh, roughly, we know that we need about 2,500 units of housing for people experiencing homelessness and low-income individuals in our community. And so um, before April, the Assembly is actually having a housing summit on November 3rd at UAA at the Student Union. So I invite everyone to come. Um, and we're going to be really going to be talking about uh, our housing action plan uh, for us uh, to see what we can do to help generate more housing development in our community. Um, and then I think really beyond that, we really need our state partners and our federal partners to um, stand up and, and be there with us. So on the state side, uh, advocating for stable funding for shelter, for increased funding for housing and supports is really critical on the state side. And on the federal side, we have been really lucky to um, have our congressional delegation behind us working to advocate with Secretary Fudge at HUD uh, to see what we can do to increase the federal HUD dollars that we get um, every year to build more housing absolutely yeah because because that's you know if you look at uh, other communities um, that are comparable to us uh, you know they are getting substantially more federal funding than we are and um, the success that they have had in dealing with homelessness is 100% tied to the federal supports. In fact, there was some, some great um, news that came out of uh, Houston that basically made that connection. The reason that Houston has been doing so well, they've had a 60% reduction in their unsheltered homelessness, is because of all of this federal money coming in. So, uh, you know, we can't do it alone, right? We are constrained with the amount of funding that we have, as is the state. The state is constrained with the amount of funding that they have. And so we need the federal government to step in. Why does Houston proportionally get so much more money than we do? You know, that is a, a question that I do not have the answer <laughs> to. Fair enough. Um, but, you know, certainly, uh, you know, it's one of the things that we've asked is for the secretary and their staff to really look at those funding formulas, because it's really baked into those formulas of how much money they're getting versus how much money we're getting. And so hopefully they can look at it from an equity lens to make sure that we are getting the kind of funding that we need to deal with the issue. Okay. Um. In terms of other long-term solutions, there's often conversations about the proposed shelter on Tudor. Is that conversation ongoing or no? Yeah, so the assembly recently took a vote um, and uh, essentially we, we, didn't, we decided not to move forward with the project. So sort of in my opinion, I am living in a post-Tudor and Elmore world where we're looking to what's next. All right. Um, anyone else want to weigh in on that? No. Okay. Um, so then the idea is to get more housing online. Is it possible to just continue the contracts from this winter further out into summer if it seems to be working? I would say from an Anchorage Health Department standpoint, the operators would probably be ready, but the problem is funding. Um, at least year over year, we're very limited on funding. And so the priority is always keeping people warm, especially in winter. And if we're constrained by that funding, which we are year over year, um, we really can't afford to continue to shelter people through the summer unless the state shows up or the federal government shows up. I, 
<laughs> I'm sort of like, okay, so so then how if if community members care about this issue and want to see everyone in housing, like what can they do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's a good question. So, you know, one of the things that we're going to be, one of the discussions we're going to be having at the assembly level is really talking about sustainable year-over-year -year funding for emergency shelter. But I think at the same time, you know, it, in a perfect world, it, I would want to see funding for emergency shelter start to go down year over year over year and funding for housing go up year over year over year. Because um, that that tells me that we're right sizing our system and that we are investing in in the real solutions, and and we're doing that this year a little bit. Last winter we spent roughly eleven million dollars in emergency shelter. This winter we're looking to spend maybe about eight to nine million dollars in emergency shelter. So, you know, if we can see those trends start to go down, then I think that tells us that we are moving in a in a system that is investing in more housing and that is really housing focused. Okay. I think when it comes to uh, the general public and the community, uh, keep an eye out for advocacy opportunities. Uh, as the state legislature uh, gets under session, um, we'll start to see some of those advocacy opportunities and legislative priorities come out. Uh, I know that the assembly uh, produces legislative priorities every year. Uh, the Anchorage Coalition to End Homelessness, along with our partner uh, Balance of State organization, the Alaska Coalition on Housing and Homelessness, uh, releases some joint advocacy materials. Uh, so I strongly encourage people, if this is something that they feel passionate about, uh, to contact your legislators, contact um, people at the state and federal level and share with them uh, how you feel and how you feel uh, the funding is best spent and what programs should be uh, prioritized. And this leads me to a question that someone submitted over social media. A person asked, does the government paying to house people who are homeless help or encourage the problem? I personally think you could argue both sides, but as far as us helping, I mean, one of the arguments that I had this summer is we pay for it on the front end or we pay for it on the back end. Every person that hit the streets this summer, we paid in uh, APD, EMT calls, uh, health, I mean, our emergency rooms, uh, boom, parks and rec staff, healthy spaces are working on, rather than cleaning up, you know, parks and trails, they're cleaning up homeless camps. Whether you're paying for it on the front end by subsidizing someone's rent or housing facility, you're paying for it on the other end uh, with municipal resources. And so, in my opinion, I think it's more, more important and uh, a better use of our funding to invest into housing on the front end to make sure someone is stabilized and, you know, not living on our parks and trails. So. And I think what we've seen, uh, especially in the past year, is a reduction in returns to homelessness. So when we see someone who is permanently housed, uh, we are seeing uh, more successes in them retaining that housing, particularly uh, after that 12-month period, uh, which is really that crucial time. So I think that really speaks to this housing first model and how it, it really does work to, to help someone address their housing stability first and then address some of those underlying uh, barriers that might exist to them uh, gaining employment or gaining another source of income to help support that. And you said just in this past 12 months, people are really retaining their housing. Can you cite anything in specific? Like, do you know what's leading to that positive trend? Uh, I think I think it's these investments. I think that making investments into housing and uh, really prioritizing 
the wraparound services with housing can, uh, is really helping with that. If for folks who don't really know that term, can you describe what, like, what wraparound services means and includes? Oh, sure. Uh, so uh, the wraparound services I'm referring to, some people will call them uh, supportive services, uh, but recognizing that uh, as I said earlier, housing first doesn't mean housing only. So it's important to keep maintaining those contacts. Uh, so that usually is through case management services, either uh, at a housing facility or in a kind of scattered site mobile model where case managers will visit uh, people in their permanent housing and help ensure that they are remaining stable and that you're able to address uh, any issues that come up with them. Okay. And... For people who are not currently in housing or at a congregate shelter, how are you reaching them to let them know about these opportunities that are coming up? Like, how are you going to help people get to the housing when it's open? Yes. Uh, so the Anchorage Coalition in Homelessness is the uh, coordinator of street outreach services here in Anchorage. Uh, so we have... Uh, contracts with organizations that provide those street outreach services. Uh, we have been hosting events called uh, pop-ups uh, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays at some of the larger encampments as well as a monthly event uh, that uh, we refer to as a mini Project Homeless Connect. If you were familiar with our services prior to um, the pandemic, uh, that was an annual event that was held, uh, but we're really working on that educational aspect and making sure that people who are experiencing unsheltered homelessness get that coordinated entry assessment and get that information uh, on what services are available and really uh, get them focused on what their housing journey needs. And if an individual who, just like anyone, meet someone and wants to help connect them to services. What advice do you give? Uh, I encourage people to come to one of those events and encourage people to um, connect with us through one of those events. Uh, they can also access any coordinated entry access point. Uh, there's an access point list on the ACH website, ach.org, uh, that lists out all of the places where you can get that coordinated entry assessment. All right. Um, and while we're kind of talking about how to help people transition and then get the longer, longer term solutions in place, we are moving towards something called functional zero. What is that? And are we there? We're not there yet. Uh, functional zero is a point where a community's uh, inflow into homelessness is less than their outflow out of homelessness. So it really is this idea that a person's experience with homelessness is rare, brief, and one time. Uh, so uh, Anchorage has been a uh, built for zero community working towards functional zero for uh, Anchorage homelessness uh, for a few years now. And uh, I think that we continue to make progress, uh, especially with uh, subpopulations. So we'll talk about functional zero overall, but also related to subpopulations like veterans, families, uh, transitional age youth, and single adults. Uh, so progress towards functional zero on some of those uh, smaller populations uh, tends to happen quicker than uh, the overall system as a whole. But it is a goal, and it is something we're working towards. Which which subpopulations is it easier for, and why? I think it, if... I, th I think it's easier for the subpopulations like the uh, veterans or the families. Um, 
sometimes because there's more resources uh, for the subpopulations uh, and sometimes because the availability of housing units is more accessible sometimes to the small or to to some of those populations um, sometimes it's the opposite and it's more challenging uh, but single adults uh, typically are looking for uh, those um, efficiency or one bedroom units that can be really hard to come by in a community and yeah, and, and you know, for me, this discussion of functional zero from really an assembly and a policy level is really all about accountability and transparency, because it really gives us the best indicator of whether we are making our investments and putting our resources in the right place. And so you can look sort of month over month by each of these different subpopulations. Are we moving in the right direction or not? And uh, you know, I can tell you that we are moving in the in the right direction when it comes to families and when it comes to veterans. Um, and what we are have historically been lagging in in terms of the investments and resources has really been single adults. Um, and so that's why you hear a lot of that focus around single adults. All right. We have about one minute left. Do we have any final thoughts? Things? Um, no, I, I just uh, you know want to encourage, again, folks to come to that housing summit on November 3rd at UAA Student Union. And then to really, um, I think like Jessica said, when the legislature gets started in January, really we need everyone in our community to be an advocate to the legislature to invest in housing and supports. It's so important. Um, I will give a notice. The MOA and Anchorage Health Department more specifically has issued a request for grant proposals for healthy and equitable communities projects. And we're seeking uh, qualified nonprofits, uh, schools and institutions of higher education, hospitals and community organizations to provide proposals for projects that are in support of creating a healthy and sustainable um, and equitable communities within the municipality. And so that's live on our purchasing page. Okay, and are you? That's a pretty broad category. Yeah, it's it's a pretty big uh, RFGP going out, so we encourage a lot of people to apply. Okay, and I would just say uh, that if you yourself are needing services or seeking help, or if you want to be part of the solution, uh, check out the ACH website. We have sections for people who need assistance, as well as places where you can volunteer to help. All right. Well, thank you all very, very much for joining me. That's our show for today. Thanks to all of the callers and to my guests, Anchorage Health Department Housing and Homeless Coordinator Alexis Johnson, Assemblymember Felix Rivera, and Anchorage Coalition to End Homelessness Chief Executive Off Chief Operating Officer Jessica Parks. Today's program was produced by Ammon Swenson and engineered by Chris Hyde. You can find us at the Hometown Alaska page on alaskapublic.org. Um, the Alaska Public Media app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. My name's Ann Hillen. Thanks for listening. Hometown Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hometown Alaska's theme song, Lead Dog, is by Kevin Barnett from Eagle River. Learn more about Hometown Alaska and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.